0: This week I read an online excerpt of a new book written by a woman by the name of Lori Duran and it's called Raising My Rainbow, Adventures in Raising a Fabulous Gender Creative. Uh, The book is about how Lori and her husband Matthew responded to their younger son named CJ and his early and very pronounced preference for the color pink, glitter, sparkles and dolls. Uh, The theme that he chose for his birthday, his third birthday, which in in Orange County, California, where they live, is a huge social event, uh, only surpassed by your 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th birthdays. But uh, this large celebration that he wanted to have, the theme that he insisted on was Disney princesses. Uh, He could name all of them. He had seen all of their movies. He knew all about them. And uh, they decided that, despite their fears and their concern about other way people would say or do, um, they would uh, follow his preferences. And when it came time for the grand presentation of the cake, uh, there it was, uh, frosted in pink, decorated with edible glitter, and covered with uh, pictures of Ariel, Jasmine, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, uh, and Belle. Duran says her son just smiled with delight, and he was thrilled uh with his cake. Uh soon uh after that he discovered Barbie and to uh satisfy his obvious interests his parents brought him uh bought him several versions of the the doll. Uh, he doesn't play with with stereotypical boy toys his preferences for toys exclusively you associate with 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 girls. He refuses to acknowledge the color blue. In fact, his mother had him tested for color blindness because he would never speak about blue and its existence. Uh, He started cross-dressing when he was six. Um, One day, he he grabbed one of his mother's uh, frilly tank tops and he danced around the house wearing it in a pair of her pumps. So his parents um, went and bought him an entire set of clothes for him to wear. He has his own pink nightgown, a gray dress, a denim skirt, uh, his parents now carefully refer to his clothes as their his play clothes. Um, Duron, whenever these things happen, whenever these events happen, he is described as mischievously happy and undeniably filled. He is, in her words, gender creative. Now, I'm guessing, like mo- like me, most of you find this story this would find this book somewhat troubling. Uh, you might uh, use other words to describe your reaction. I also recognize that in a group this large, it, you may have shared some of this little boy's unusual preferences or found these, this story intriguing, and um, maybe you, you find those things in yourself and, and you, you find that frightening. What, what's clear, and if you read, had read the whole story, read the whole book if, if you want, is that Lori and her husband, they really love their son. And they really want to do for what's best for him. And they talk about their own uncertainties and their own questions and sometimes their own anger over this. But they're trying to do what makes him happy. And uh, the choices that they're making for their gender-creative son are actually part of a growing trend. Uh, there is, uh, I read a sum, about a summer camp for boys with CJ's preferences. It's run by parents. It's called You Are You. Uh, And it gives uh, boys a chance who want to to express their appreciation for traditional girl things. They have a beauty pageant at this camp. They uh, practice applying makeup. And you're encouraged to wear as much pink, glitter, sparkles, rings, earrings, necklaces, uh, and dresses and skirts as you like. Today what we're going to do is we're going to begin walking through the third major section of the book of Leviticus, And believe it or not, this is a passage of Scripture that helps us think carefully about this sort of gender-creative behavior. Now, this is the day we're going to return to our study of Leviticus. And uh, when I say it addresses gender creativity, what I mean by that is not the Bible's prohibitions against homosexuality or its condemnation of of cross-dressing. I'm thinking about this entire system of worship that God has designed, that God gave for His people, Israel. What I want to show you is that under the direction of the Bible, we should not be encouraged by stories or events like this gender confusion. We should not be troubled by them because we're homophobic. And we should not be troubled by them because we're driven by this macho man ethic. Or because we hate women. Or because we think that this, this sort of confusion is totally foreign to anything that we ever struggle with. That's, that's not the reason to be troubled by this story. We're troubled by this because we recognize that God himself created distinctions in the world and recognizing his lordship over all we believe that these distinctions should be celebrated, noticed, marked, uh enjoyed, rejoiced over. Not confused. Uh, This is the direction that the book of Leviticus, the next section that we're going to go through, is going to take us. God did not create distinctions because he loves categories. God did not create distinctions in creation because he has some form of divine OCD and everything has to be in its place. Uh, He wants us, by what he taught his people, Israel, to learn specific truths about him and specific truths about the world in which we live and how we relate to the God who made us. We're going to return again to the book of Leviticus. Our normal practice as a congregation is to move systematically through books of the Bible. This is one of the ways that we express our submission to him as Lord uh, we believe that moving systematically and carefully through the Bible, we allow God to set the agenda for what we learn and what we study and, and how uh, we worship Him. Huh. There's things in the Bible that, that surprise us, that if, if, if I was responsible solely to set the agenda for what we study, there are a lot of things that I would miss that I would not know. Think about the book of Job, for example. What do you say to a man who has just lost all of his children in a terrible accident. My natural inclination is not to go up to him and, and ask him if he knows where snow comes from. Or if he's able to put a leash on the biggest animal that he knows. Or to ask him if he's ever seen a mountain goat give birth. Or if he can, if he knows how to make the sun rise in the morning. That would not be my natural reaction. But it's, it's the questions that God wants us to ask. The things that God brings. To a man who's lost all of his children. We want the scriptures to set the agenda. We there are things here, God says things to us we would not come up with ourselves, obviously, and there are truths he wants us, us to know that, that we wouldn't emphasize. So we move very systematically and carefully through books of the Bible. We want to be exposed to everything that God has to say to us. Now, it's been some time since we looked at the book of Leviticus, so my goals today are very simpler. First, I want to remind you of some of the things that we have learned so far. Do you remember the various types of sacrifices that are offered in the book of Leviticus? Do you remember all of them? Well, don't worry if you didn't. I didn't either. I had to go back and review. Um, We're going to spend some time doing that this morning second thing I want to do today is I want to set the stage for the next several weeks by unpacking several concepts that are going to be repeated uh, over and over again as we look specifically at the chapters that are to come. And then from there, third, the third thing I want to do is I want to show you why this matters. What difference does it make to learn about this ancient worship system that was in a culture so different from ours? uh, We're separated by so many thousands of cultural and social and religious development. Why why are we going to talk about these things? Well, let's begin here by reorienting ourselves to the book. Now, some of you have this, but I included in your bulletin on the back of our song sheet today this, this handy-dandy chart of the book of Leviticus. And today we're going to start, our aim is to start in chapter 11. That's where we're going to go. But this chart reminds us of some of the basic facts of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus was written by Moses. And it serves as the main worship manual for the Old Testament. It was for the Israelites, these people who have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. God has rescued them, and now He wants them to know how they are to live with Him and worship Him. The name Leviticus comes from the tribe of Levi. If you were going to be a priest, you were a descendant of Aaron, the high priest who was a member of the tribe of the Levites. (laughs) Remember, the nation of Israel is a tribal people. That's how they organize their life, based on their tribe. We do it how? Based on our political boundaries. We're Pennsylvanians, not New Yorkers. Uh, we're, Lan- I can't say this properly, apparently, Lancastrians, and not uh, Periites. I don't know. Um, let them deal with that. Uh where uh we, we ident- or or huh, I am of Penn Manor, and some of you are of L S or Hemfield or C V. Right? Uh that's how we uh we organize ourselves, we 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 uh categorize ourselves, we identify ourselves. Well, in, in the ancient world in ancient Israel it would have been by tribe, I am of the Levites, and Leviticus is for the Levites. One of the great challenges of reading this book is that it was written with a culture, into a culture with, a, with a practices that are so far different from our own. Uh, even as Christians, we believe this whole book is God's Word. Uh, but it's not familiar to us, this world. Uh, but we're looking at it carefully because in the book of Leviticus, we have embedded for us foundational ideas that will show themselves all the way through the Bible. We're, we're looking, as it were, if, if the New Testament is a skyscraper, the book of Leviticus is the foundation that supports its height. If the gospel is a flower, the book of Leviticus is the bud that is going to open and reveal the beauty of that flower to us. If Jesus is the symphony that we want to hear, the book of Leviticus has the scales and the tunes and the key signatures and the time signatures that lay the foundation for that beautiful music. It makes the music sing. Now, here are some key ideas that we have already discussed in various ways that I think we need to remember afresh. First and most centrally in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus teaches us over and over and over again, God is holy and we are not. God is holy, and we are not. That word "holy" it's a religious word. Most specifically, it just means set apart. God is set apart. He is unique and distinct. God is uh, set apart, most especially from sin. Now, if we were to think of that positively, when we say that God is holy, we mean that He is He is uh, holy, unique in power and in goodness and in wisdom. That is, um, God is good. He knows what is right. He's wise. He knows what is right, and He has the power to bring about what is right. When we talk about God being holy, being good, we are affirming that if you knew everything that God knows, if you could see every situation and every person and every circumstance through all time the way God does, and you could see exactly what God was doing in every situation, at every moment you would say that is exactly the right thing that ought to happen. What God is doing, it's absolutely perfect. That thing that He is orchestrating, whether it be blessing or cursing, justice or mercy, God's holiness means that at every moment in time, He does exactly what should be done, exactly what is right. Now, God's holy and we are not if someone were to take a video camera and follow you around for 24 hours, and you were able to sit down and watch your own life for 24 hours, I wonder what you would say. If you could see everything that God does, you would say, that's exactly right. What would you say if you could see the 24 hours of your life? Hmm. Something like that happened to me yesterday. We were driving downtown on our way to the library, and uh, we came to a crosswalk. Pedestrians have the right of way. We stopped a family crossed in front of us. They all stepped onto the curb to go, and I started moving, but the little boy who was a part of this family had dropped one of the leaves that he was carrying, all precious leaf. So he stepped back into the road to reach down to grab the leaf, and I I stopped, and, and his mother grabbed him and pulled him up on the sidewalk, and she said to him, what's the matter with you? The windows were open. I could hear it. I I said to my children, I said, Have I ever said, What's the matter with you to you? Children do not spare you, do they? I I don't like that phrase. They said, Yes, you have. Oh. Claire said, Well, most of the time you say, What's your problem? (laughs) I don't say, What's the matter with you? What's your problem? That, that question, that self righteous, angry, frustrated question has come out of my mouth at my kids. And I saw somebody else do it and I thought, oh, is it that ugly when I say it? Yes, it is. God is holy. (laughs) I am not. Earlier this summer, again, just another car story for you. We were riding in the car, and and I had used that phrase again. We were talking about prayer over the summer. I I can't remember the context under which I said this. I think I was talking about how uh, we come to God through Jesus, and I said, you know why we need an intercessor? Because God is holy and we are not. And Claire said to me in the car, she said, do you know how many times you've said that? We're studying the book of Leviticus, and you say it over and over and over again. God is holy and we are not. And she started chanting it. God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we are not. And our children, the, her siblings, started joining in in the back of the car. They thought they were making fun of me inside. I'm going, "Ah, oh, at least they heard something I said. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> it's over and over and over again in this book. God is holy. He is unique in beauty, in glory, in wisdom, in power, in goodness. And, and everything in the book of Leviticus is designed to teach us this lesson, to remind us of us, to ingrain this in us. Here's the second idea that thus far in Leviticus that God's presence among the people demands special care. God's presence uh, among the people demands special care. Uh, Unique to all nations in the world, the Israelites, God here moves in physically with them. That's what the book of Exodus is about. The book of Exodus is about, towards the end, how God's people build, the Israelites built the tabernacle that God was going to move in, that was going to be His house. Uh, He dwells with us spiritually. He dwelt with them, especially in a special way, physically. And because God lives there physically, their lives have to be different. How, how does your behavior change when you have house guests? You have somebody come over to your house. Um, does your menu change? Or uh, maybe if they're staying for a few, times, a few days, your bedtime changes. Um, maybe you eat in the dining room. Oh, company's coming. We're eating in the dining room. What is this plate? It's the china. We get it out when company comes. Don't break it, right? Special plates. We've got guests. How do you live when God moves into the neighborhood? Well, his presence demands uh, different things. One of them is this great system of sacrifices. Here's key idea number three. The sacrificial system was detailed and exacting. Detailed and exacting. In order for the people to survive with God living among them, the people offered these sacrifices. The guilt of the unholy people in the presence of a holy God has to be covered. They have to be protected. Because part of God's goodness is that He is committed to fixing everything that is broken. He's committed to righting every wrong, to fixing every act of evil. He is committed to pouring out justice on every parent who says, what's the matter with you? The problem is that the people themselves are broken. They're wrong. They're evil. So what are they going to do? They offer sacrifices to cover themselves, their unholiness. We're used to thinking of the Old Testament sacrifices as a one-to-one correspondence. You sin, you offer a lamb. You sin, you offer a lamb. That's not the way the sacrifices in the Old Testament, though, worked. Um, There was a series of sacrifices. They were offered on a regular basis, and although all of them in some way addressed the unholiness of the people—they communicated different aspects about sin, different flavors of what it does. Uh, the animal sacrifices to us sound the most gruesome. The animal died as your representative. You brought a perfect animal to worship. You confessed your sins, and you leaned on it and you slit its throat. People have mocked me. You know how many times I have done this standing up here? They've said, we've missed that gesture all summer long. So there you go. Over and over. Right here. This is what you did. Lean on the animal, slit its throat. You collect the blood and you take the blood and you splash it against the altar. It was a statement each worshiper was saying, because of my unholiness, my guilt, I deserve to die. I deserve to have my throat cut. Of course, uh, all these sacrifices are, are pushing forward uh, anticipating when Jesus himself will come and he'll be offered as the ultimate sacrifice for all unholiness. Uh, Let me just remind you briefly of the different sacrifices. Burnt offerings were the most common sacrifice. They were offered by the priests every single day, and you could bring some one too if you wanted. uh, And and, uh, they were atoned for sin, but they also communicated because the, the burnt offering was placed on the altar and completely consumed, totally given to God. Burnt offerings are the symbol of total dedication to God, total devotion to God, exclusive loyalty to God. Uh, a fellowship offering, uh, excuse me, a grain offering, they followed a burnt offering. It was a, it was a presentation, do you remember, in Leviticus chapter 2, there's the recipes for how you can do this. You can just bring the grain, you can bring the flour itself, or you can bring bread, or you can bring something that sounds like a donut, as it's described in the Bible. Ha, some of you bring donuts to church, right? Ha, they take, take donuts. And, and um, this is a grain offering, it's a symbol. God is the provider. He, he provides for us. Fellowship offering is a celebration of peace with God. Because of the forgiveness of sins, unholy people can live in the presence of a holy God and have peace with Him. And what do you do with that offering? Well, you, you, you give part of it to God, you eat part of it, and what's left over you share with other people because peace with God is something to be enjoyed and something to be shared. Uh, Then there's uh, uh, sin offerings, or maybe better stated, purification offerings. This reminds us here that sin defiles. Sin pollutes. And purification offerings address this this pollution. And finally, there's guilt offerings. Sin makes you a debtor. Sin defrauds. Um, Sin defrauds God. It robs God of His glory. It steals from others. And guilt offerings are about resolving the debt that sin brings. The sacrificial system was detailed and exacting. Now here, here's the final key idea, the final uh, uh, key idea from Leviticus that we've covered so far. Human beings need an intercessor. Human beings need an intercessor. You cannot yourself enter God's presence You need someone to represent you, someone who has specifically prepared, someone set apart for this task, who's trained and who's dedicated to live this life of representing you to God. And if you remember, do you remember that story of Nadab and Abihu? The first day, the first day the tabernacle was being used, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, bring what the Bible calls strange fire and what happens they bring this strange fire to the altar and God judges them and they're consumed they're dead I I once heard of a wedding where where at the climactic moment of the wedding uh, the bride and groom had planned uh, the bride and her mother had planned that that there would be this this box of of butterflies a thousand butterflies and at the climactic moment they would open the box and these butterflies would fly out in this beautiful uh, moment well, the wedding was outside, and no one figured on the heat of the day, and, and no one figured, uh, thought about the fact that the butterflies were not in the shade, and inside the box it became stiflingly hot. So at the climactic moment, they opened the box, and they looked in and found they had paid for 1,000 dead butterflies. Seems like a bad sign, Right? I'm not a superstitious person, but you what do you say? Congratulations on your wedding. You killed a thousand butterflies. <laughs> Here's this new worship system. Yes, we can go in God's presence. God's going to live with us. He's going to bless us. Yes. And then Nadab and Abihu approach God and boom, they're struck dead. And you say, oh, oh. no. Who's got who? Who is going to represent the people to God? Who, who's, it's got to be somebody better than Nadab and Abihu. It can't be them. It's got to be somebody better. That's where we have been. And now for a few minutes I want to talk about where we're going. For the next several weeks and the next several chapters in the book of Leviticus, we're going to think together about the laws of purity, the purity laws. And we're going to learn how and why God makes certain distinctions. Distinctions about what the people ate and wore and distinctions about diseases and infections and, and distinctions about how they regulated their married life and their family life. This is the part of the Bible that we get mocked for. You Christians who believe that you should obey every part of the Bible, do you eat shellfish? Because when I read my Bible, it says you're not supposed to eat shellfish. How about bacon, huh? If you really believe the Bible, why do you eat bacon? I've heard some Jewish commentators say, as if the persecution we have endured is not enough, God also took bacon from us. You Christians, you don't believe all the Bible. Do you, wear, uh, do you ever wear uh, linen and cotton together because you're not supposed to do that according to the Bible? Uh, yeah, you say you believe the Bible. Only the parts of the Bible that you want to obey and you want to believe. That's what you're like, you Christians. Hmm. Uh, that, that seems strange. But God has ordered the people's lives. And God has commanded them to think in different categories, and we're going to talk about those categories in the next several weeks, and and if they still exist, and why they still exist, and and what they mean, and what we're supposed to learn from them. Take your Bibles and turn me to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. That's the passage that I want to read that is foundational for the rest of um, the, this, our study of the, the book of Leviticus uh these next few chapters in particular. Here is where the foundation is laid for the distinctions that are going to come. And I want you to notice these categories. Leviticus 10. We're actually going to start in verse 8 here. God's command to the priests. Then the Lord said to Aaron, verse 8, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. I think maybe Nadab and Abihu were drunk when they brought the strange fire, hence the reason for this rule. Let's keep going. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Verse 10. So that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. What we're going to talk about for the next several weeks as we move through 11 through 15 of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 15, is these four categories. Holy and common, clean and unclean. Let's think about them together here first. Holy and common belong together and they refer to your status. Your status. You were either holy or you were common. Now, holy things belong to God. They are set apart for God. They were for God's use and uh, they were specifically His. All of the tools used at the tabernacle, the shovel they used to shovel the ash was a holy shovel. It was God's shovel. It was to be used in uh, the tabernacle. The priests were holy people. They were set apart for a specific task. Everything that was not specifically consecrated to God is common. Now, a common object, a common person could be sanctified, and then it would be holy. And a holy object could be profaned, and then it would be common. But everything is divided into these two categories, holy and common. Most people and things in the nation of Israel were common, not holy. The holy things were God's. Now, holy and common refers to your status. Clean and unclean refers to your condition. Your condition. So, for example, you could have a holy priest who is by status holy, but who by circumstance, by condition, was unclean. Hmm. Uh, the normal condition of human beings is that they are common and clean. Here's some synonyms for clean. We're talking about ritual laws. Some synonyms for clean uh, would be uh, normal, healthy, pure, natural, pristine. Unclean things, though, are abnormal, they're unhealthy, they're impure, they're unnatural, they're contaminated. And you can be unclean for a number of reasons. Sin makes you unclean. Seems pretty obvious. But sometimes, and and we're going to see this in greater detail, the normal course of life can make you unclean. Um, Giving birth makes a woman unclean. Touching a dead body makes you unclean. Physical intimacy with your spouse makes you unclean. Now, these are not bad things, and this is where we struggle a little bit. Unclean does not always mean sinful. Um, All the the things I just mentioned are blessings. Birth is a blessing. Why does having children make you unclean? Your house will never be clean again. That's not it. Um, uh, 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 Sex is a good gift from God, and preparing a dead body for burial is an honorable endeavor, but they make you unclean. Again, we struggle here. The word unclean just just sounds bad, and that's not necessarily true. Think about the word dirty. Is being dirty good or bad? Well, um, if you're going to a wedding, especially your own, it's probably bad. Okay. Brush your teeth. Take a shower. Wash your hair. But sometimes dirty is, is a good, it's a sign that you've been working really hard. Planting vegetables. Weeding. uh, Building a house. Haying. If you're unclean under those circumstances, that's actually good. You don't need to feel guilty about that. If you walk in the house and, and, and someone says, Oh, you're so disgusting. What have you been doing? Planting my garden. Oh. Don't feel guilty about that. Stink with pride. I mean you should be happy about that. It's good that you're dirty. I mean go take a shower, but it's good that you're that you're dirty. Same thing here goes with clean and, and unclean. You don't need to be uh, to repent or feel guilty because of your dirtiness. You just need a bath. And something similar happens in, in Leviticus. If you are unclean because of sin, you need to confess and repent, and you need forgiveness. But if you're unclean because of, of the normal circumstances of life, just wash. Take a bath. Forgiveness isn't necessary. Just wash, and you'll be clean. Again, we're going to talk about this more, but there are levels of uncleanness. And and the implication of Leviticus is, if you're unclean, you should long to be clean. You should look forward to it. Now, here's why. There is one rule that you must always keep in mind with being clean and unclean, holy and common. You must never, ever, ever forget this. The rule is, the categories must not mix, especially what is unclean. What is unclean cannot enter God's holy presence. Uncleanness is contagious. It spreads. It profanes what is holy. And unclean people cannot enter God's presence. An unclean priest should not report for duty. And an unclean person cannot present a sacrifice unless it's a sacrifice to purify him. If you are unclean, something has to be done about it. God is creating distinctions and categories in their mind. Why is he doing that? Well, that's what I want to talk about briefly here before we finish. Number three, I want to talk about purity laws and followers of Christ. We're going to talk about the specifics more in the coming days, but I want you to recognize two things. Number one, you should recognize that some distinctions still remain. These, these are the building blocks in the book of Leviticus that teach us how to think about God. Now, God is not so concerned about bacon that he forbids all people at all time to eat it, but he built into this legal system a a thinking that was supposed to shape how they evaluate the world and the world God made. There are categories of food and there are categories of being. God is in a different category than I am. He is different than I am. Like an unclean piece of meat is different than a clean piece of meat, so God is different than human beings. Much of the Levitical law is this teaching tool to implant in the people's mind that there is a distinction between God and human beings. Now some some of them some of these distinctions remain. We'll talk about which ones do and which ones don't and why. God is in a category all by himself, but men and women are in distinct categories too. We're going to return to this, and I'm going to mention this, and I'm going to say this at the risk of sounding like some strange conspiracy theorist. But listen, there is a connection in our culture between the normalization of homosexuality and gender creativity and the rejection of the one true God of the Bible. I'm not going to make that case today, Um but but God, the one true God of the Bible, and his replacement with neo paganism or with Wiccan religion uh, that does not see distinction between God and human beings manifests itself in the tearing down of walls between men and women. I'm not trying to make that case, uh, I'm not trying to prove it to you today, but I just want you to see and understand the, the possibility of this. There is a distinction between God and human beings and there is a distinction between men and women. And when you break down the barrier between God and human beings in the way pantheism does, God is all of us, we're all in God, God is everywhere, God is everything. When you break that distinction down, it is natural and normal to break this distinction down between men and women, between masculinity and femininity, manhood and womanhood. See, there's more going on in gender-creative homes than some parents suspect, and there's more happening in our culture as we increasingly normalize homosexuality than we realize. Now, we're gonna come back to this. But Leviticus and, and the distinctions that are here are supposed to shore up in your mind the distinctions that God still wants us to keep. Now, now second, why does this matter? We are going to have an opportunity in the coming weeks to rejoice over and over again that Jesus cleanses all who come to Him. Jesus cleanses all who come to Him. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in the chapter, in Mark chapter five. I'll, I'll tell you what happens. Jesus uh, in Mark chapter five has left a, a Palest- uh, left Palestine, left Jewish-dominated Palestine, and he's entered a Gentile part of the the country. And one of the first people that he encounters is a man, oh, uh, 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 a troubled man. He's uh, a man who was demon-possessed, and he was so out of control that he's been kicked out of his village, and he lives in a graveyard among the tombs. You know the this, this story, Perhaps. As the story goes, he meets Jesus, Jesus heals him, he exercises the demons, and he presents the man to his friends, uh, dressed, under control, and in his right mind. It's a beautiful story about Jesus' power. Last year, I, I heard a, 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 a preaching of that story, though, from Levitical eyes, through the eyes of Leviticus. See, that man is not just a poor soul... He's not just a, 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 an unfortunate guy. He is as unclean as it could, you could possibly be. He was, he was not able to have any sort of contact at all with holy people and holy things. He was a Gentile. Gentiles are unclean people. He was rejected even by pig farmers. <laughs> that You're unclean. He lived among tombs. Dead people make you unclean and he was possessed by unclean spirits. Carl Truman, who preached his sermon, said, if Jesus were a normal holy man, if he were a normal holy person, he should have run from this crazy tomb dweller. You're unclean. Stay away from me. You're going to desecrate me. You're going to profane me. You you stay away from me. Unclean people had to leave the village. You had to leave the tribe. Get out if you're unclean. If Jesus were a normal, holy man, this demoniac could do nothing to him but desecrate him. Uncleanness is contagious. Holiness is not contagious unless it is the holiness of the Lord Jesus. And what happens when an unholy, unclean man comes into contact with the Lord Jesus and sets himself before him? Oh, He's clean, he's dressed, he's in his right mind. There's not one person that's listening to me today that is is so far gone, that is so dirty, so stained, whether it be by your own sin or the sin others have done to you, who is beyond the power of the Lord's cleansing work. No one is so impure that God cannot redeem if you're not satisfied with that being true, understand what happened. The Lord Jesus in His holiness, just by virtue of His existence, stepping on the planet, unclean people come to Him and they're made clean, they're healed, they're restored. Not, not only just in the, the, the virtue of, of who He is, but remember what He did. He, he went to the cross and He absorbed in His body. He took upon Himself all the sin, all the uncleanness, all the mess, that we have created. He absorbed it. He absorbed its penalty and died and rose again because Jesus is stronger than anything that is broken, unclean, sinful, evil. And as we think about these clean and unclean things for the weeks that are to come, we're going to have an opportunity over and over again to rejoice. Look what Jesus does. Look at who he is. To everybody who comes to him by faith, He cleanses, He forgives, He restores, He renews. God is holy. (laughs) You are not. But this same holy God invites unholy people into His presence through Jesus Christ. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about how God has built walls. He's built walls of division to train his people to think carefully about him, and that's very good. And then we're going to rejoice that Jesus Christ is the door in all of those walls who says, come in, come in, come in. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are thankful to you for this great truth that Jesus Christ has invited us to come in. He's the door. To, to heaven, oh. eternal life, forgiveness. How thankful we are. Father, as uh, we pray, as, as we, we are entering this study of this strange material in this culture that's so far away and so different than we are, would, would you give us wisdom and insight, uh, help us to learn the things that we should learn and see in them the truths that, that are there Give us clarity of of thought and understanding. Thank you, God, that you so carefully have taught your people about your holiness and our unholiness. By your clear diagnosis, we recognize with great joy the cure that is our Lord and Savior. What a Savior he is. Magnify his name in our presence as we study this, your book that you have given to us for our correction, our learning, our training in righteousness. Do these things in us and for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.